0: Hi, Parcasters. I'd like to take a moment to let you know that we'll be taking a break next week for the Thanksgiving holiday. But don't worry. We do have a very special treat lined up, so stay tuned for that. I'd also like to take this opportunity to say thank you. Your loyalty and support is what makes this show possible. And this year, more than ever, it has meant so much to us. From all of us here at Parcast, we wish you a very happy Thanksgiving. Thanks for listening. Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations of torture and harm against children. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Goodman Giles Corey was a blessed man. He'd lived a long time, sailing from England to the Americas in the 1640s. He ran a prosperous farm in Salem Village, and had reached the venerable age of 80 before the cursed girls ruined his reputation. They had screamed that Goodman Cory had pinched and pricked them with needles. They had screeched and cried and contorted themselves in front of him. He knew he'd done no such thing, but the court was unlikely to believe him. He was honest, sometimes to a fault, his dear wife Martha always said. He confessed to beating that servant Jacob Goodale to death, hadn't he? He'd respected the court and paid his fine in that case, even though it had been his right to do what he wished with the worker, who he had caught stealing apples. But now that the little monsters had accused him of witchcraft, he refused to dignify it with a response, even if it killed him. And it would. He was to face trial by pressing. High Sheriff Corwin's eyes were dark as he ordered his men to place the board across Corey's chest. Then they placed the stones on top of him, one by one. It left only a tightness at first, a discomfort. Every now and then, Corwin asked him for a plea of guilty or not guilty, but Corey remained silent. Then the process began again. In between stones, Corwin paused longer and longer, Goodman Corey was struggling to breathe. It was then, as his vision began to close, that he saw Jacob Goodale. Corey's former servant was crouched close, his face pressed beside the sheriff's, though High Sheriff Corwin did not notice. Jacob grinned, his teeth bloody, cheeks bruised, exactly as Corey had last seen him. But then his face began to change, Worms crawled from his eye sockets. Maggots fell from his mouth. Corey tried to close his eyes, but the wet slap of insects on the ground was inescapable. Goodman Corey's famous last words were, More weight. Many in the town considered it to be an act of defiance, but Jacob Goodale's spirit knew the truth. He held Corey in place with cold, invisible hands and smiled. More weight, the spirit said, and the high sheriff obliged. (laughs) Welcome to Haunted Places, a Spotify original from Parkast. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places and all other originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. And every Tuesday, make sure to check out Urban Legends. These special episodes of Haunted Places are available exclusively on Spotify. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to the Joshua Ward House, formerly known as the George Corwin House, the home to the acting sheriff of the Salem Witch Trials, and discover why, to this day,
1: It's haunted. Coming up, we'll go witch hunting. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details.
0: When you hear the word Salem, you probably think of the word witch, and for good reason. The Salem Witch Trials were some of the most iconic events in early American history, fueled by mass hysteria and paranoia over supernatural activity. From 1692 to 1693, more than 200 people were accused of witchcraft in the port city of Salem, Massachusetts, and its poorer agricultural counterpart, Salem Village. Among the accused, 20 were executed, including married couple Martha and Giles Corey, and five more died while imprisoned. Corey is often known for refusing to make a plea, but this wasn't necessarily because he knew he was guilty. Many have believed that because of the law in Massachusetts at the time, a defendant who refused to enter a plea couldn't be tried, which also meant his estate couldn't be confiscated after his execution. By not pleading his guilt or innocence, Corey managed to preserve his estate for his descendants. However, some historians have debated this notion, making Corey's final actions more mysterious. Certain names, like the Corrie's, are infamous in the history of the Salem Witch Trials. But at the center of it all was the high sheriff of Essex County, George Corwin. While his uncle, a powerful judge, presided over the trials, George Corwin was responsible for the arrests and executions. He was known to be a cruel and vicious man not only did he attempt to force Corey's plea through pressing, a method of torture in which the interrogator placed weight after heavy weight onto the victim's chest. Corwin also threatened to confiscate Corey's possessions and sell them off for personal gain, as he had done with so many others. Legend has it that George Corwin committed some of the most horrible acts of torture in the basement of his house on Salem's Washington Street. Perhaps this was an attempt to hide his cruelty from the eyes of his neighbors, but he could only outrun the devil for so long. George Corwin knew he was called by God to rid the world of evil. He took pride in his position as High Sheriff. There were people who claimed he reveled in it, but that would be unholy. He would never go beyond the breaches of what the Lord allowed. He simply upheld law and order as God and the judges intended. When George arrived at the town's meeting house, he tried to wave hello to a little girl standing outside, but she hid behind her mother's skirts. He expected the mother to give him an apologetic smile, but instead, her eyes burned with an unspoken hatred. She asked about confiscated property, Cattle, jewelry, furniture, and valuables he'd taken from the accused witches. She said it with disdain, but he felt no shame for his actions. He told her that artifacts tarnished by sin needed to be destroyed or divided up between goodly people. There was no telling what the witches had done to them. He was saving her from their havoc. The woman didn't look impressed. She commented that the proctor's cows, which George had sold and slaughtered for profit, must have been very cursed indeed. George ignored the slight and bid her good day. She didn't return the gesture. As George walked off, he told himself that people's perceptions changed with time. It had been three years since the coven had been destroyed. In that time, the townspeople had begun to forget, to grow complacent they'd forgotten about the original dangers of the witches, and he'd afforded them such complacency. Essex County was sleepy and safe again, all thanks to Sheriff Corwin. George stayed at the meeting house late into the night, injecting himself into any conversation he could find. No one dared send him away. After all, his reputation preceded him. But after hours of discussions, by the time he headed home, He was already drunk with exhaustion. His lantern waved slightly as he moved down the harbor road. When he finally reached his porch. He paused. There was a doll sitting on his doorstep. It was just a little thing, a crisscross of bent corn husks and twine, but was unnerving for several reasons. The first was simple enough. The frivolity of toys of any kind was sinful. Every good Puritan knew that. The second reason had George clutching his chest, struggling for breath. No penitent person would have made a doll like this and left it at his home. Dolls such as this one had one purpose. Witchcraft. George knew he shouldn't touch it, but it was lying on his threshold. Stepping over it could prove a worse curse. Should he carry the evil into his home with him? No, he had to act now. He opened his lantern to remove the candle and set the witch’s effigy alight. As it burned, he kicked it quickly into the street so it wouldn’t catch on the house. The corn husk shrivelled to nothing, leaving ash between the cobblestones. George opened the door as quietly as possible, so as not to wake the household, and quickly headed to his office. There he had a Bible blessed by the great preacher and witch-hunter, Cotton Mather. He certainly needed the extra help. He opened the door to the little room just as quietly as the first, but he had to stop himself from crying out. There was another corn doll on his desk, and one on the floor beside it, and a third on the windowsill, turned as if to gaze out towards the street, The doll's small stalk of a hand had rested against the curtains, waiting, maliciously waiting, for him to come home. From the corner of his eye, George saw something move. In the darkest corner of the office, a silhouette had formed. Her features were obscured, but she had the fluted torso and long skirt of a Puritan widow. But her feet were floating several inches off the ground, He whipped around to get a better look. But there was nothing there. George put his head into his hands. He was certain the Lord was testing his faith. But George would prevail, as he had in every case he'd faced so far. He would prove his value. He would win this fight. He turned towards the chest that held Mather's Bible. But there was a woman standing on top of it. He could see that she was dressed in thick black wool, but her head moved back and forth so rapidly that he could not make out any of her features. She moved her hands behind her back and held her foot over the edge of the chest. George's heart thundered. Something about the movement was terrifying, but the wooden chest was only two feet tall, if that. What was she playing at? She had nowhere to fall, but when she took the other foot off the chest, he found himself reaching out to try and make the catch. Only she fell straight through the wooden floor, her neck snapping as she disappeared. George tried to catch his breath, but the lady in black quickly reappeared in the opposite corner of the room. Her blurred head jutted to the side. The vertebrae stuck out from the skin. She floated toward him slowly, as though she had the rest of time to reach him. Then, George heard a laugh in his ear. The woman rushed to him, moving at inhuman speed. He screamed, but lost his breath when she stopped just in front of him. Her face should have been close enough to see, to identify, but it only twitched from silhouette to silhouette, shadow to shadow, in an ever-shifting wheel. He cried out for help, anything to make it end. Then, finally, the spinning stopped. George strained to see her face, which was now so close to him that he should have been able to make out her features. But just as he thought he could, his vision went blurry, and his heart gave out. One of the dolls appeared to smile as his body crumpled to the floor. George Corwin died of a heart attack on April 12, 1696. He was 30 years old. Towards the end of his life, he faced constant anger from the families of victims of the witch trials, who accused him of unjustly seizing their property. Corwin appeared to have been unrepentant, however, as he retained most of the goods up until his death. While his actions were unethical, he was legally allowed to seize the possessions of felons, and the witches had been judged as criminals. Visitors to his home have reported visions of a woman in black. Her face is distorted, they say, flickering so quickly that no feature can be recognized. For that reason, there's been a lot of speculation about her identity. Is she a specific victim of Corwin's torture? A so-called witch he sent to the gallows? Or perhaps the spirits he wronged are so numerous that they fight for dominance together in one horrible apparition? We're not sure we'd like to know. Up next, another spirit joins the woman in black. Listeners, here's a show you do not want to miss. When it comes to love, every story is unique. Some play out like fairy tales and some don't. In Our Love Story, the new Spotify original from Parcast, you'll discover the many pathways to love, as told by the actual couples who found them. Every Tuesday, Our Love Story celebrates the ups, downs, and pivotal moments that turn complete strangers into perfect pairs. Each episode offers an intimate glimpse into a real-life romance, with couples recounting the highlights and hardships that define their love, Whether it's a chance encounter, a former friendship, or even a former enemy, our love story proves that love can begin and blossom in the most unexpected ways. Ready to hear more? Follow our love story free
1: on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be with a personalized plan and expert coaching. Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story.
0: One of Sheriff Corwin's most defiant targets was a wealthy resident of Salem named Philip English. After being accused of witchcraft, Philip and his wife Mary fled to New York, but were able to return to Salem in 1693 when the trials had finished. Corwin, however, had confiscated their property, so they sued the sheriff to get it back. Unfortunately for the Englishes, Corwin died before the matter was settled. And after the sheriff's death, Philip insisted that Corwin's family settle his debt, but they ignored him so he decided to give the family a taste of Corwin's own medicine. Philip English usually assessed danger with a clear and clinical mind. He always weighed his options first, and then did what was best for his family. In the case of the Salem Hysteria, the answer had been to leave. But he'd come to the conclusion far later than he should have. He and his wife Mary had been tempting targets for George Corwin and his conspirators, They were wealthy sea merchants who owned buildings all over Salem, and Corwin had a penchant for arresting those with significant personal property. But Philip hadn't been fast enough to save Mary. Before they could leave, she was apprehended by Corwin and his men, and taken to a jail in Boston to await trial. Philip, in his short-sighted grief and anger, spoke out against Mary's accusers. He hoped cooler heads would prevail. But soon Philip was accused of witchcraft. And there was a warrant out for his arrest. With the help of friends, Philip evaded capture. But when he heard his status as a fugitive was hurting his beloved wife's case, he gave himself up. He would join her in a Boston jail. It was an odd experience, dehumanizing, but somehow also very polite. One morning, the jailer told Philip and Mary they could have a day in the city if they agreed to return at night. Family friends urged them to flee to New York. Leaving their children behind. With a heavy heart and tired mind, Philip agreed. Trapped in New York, Philip sought news of Salem every day. After he heard that the hysteria had interrupted the town's farming production, he sent boats of food to Salem's port. And a year later, when the hysteria finally ended, Philip and Mary came home. But home as they knew it had been destroyed. Their cargo was damaged and heirlooms taken. Their house, buildings, and ships had all been ransacked by George Corwin. And not long after, Mary died while giving birth. Philip was heartbroken, and his grief only fueled his desire for vengeance. He set about to rebuild his life and seek justice for their stolen property. But how did one report a theft when the thief was the county sheriff? A lawsuit, of course. But lawsuits took time, and Corwin turned out to have none. As we noted earlier, the sheriff keeled over before Philip could crush him in court. Philip's final option was to negotiate with Corwin's family. Philip was civil at first. He politely reminded them that while he wanted compensation for all of the damage, he would settle for the return of his own family's heirlooms. But the Cormans refused to speak to him, burrowing themselves in their grand brick home on Washington Street. They turned away all messengers, and even agents of the court. They didn't even appear out in public. But Philip knew one event they would have to appear for. The funeral. It was an awkward affair. The Corwins mourned the non-existent nobility of a corrupt and cruel man. Philip and his friends waited patiently as teary relatives filed out to their carts and headed down to the road to the cemetery. Philip would let the family think they were safe, but only for a moment. According to one legend, when the Corwins reached the churchyard, Philip and his crew surrounded them. The family cowered and shook like rabbits. Their tears became wails and their prayers defiant, then pleading. But Philip refused to enjoy their suffering the way that Corwin had enjoyed his. And besides, he had an important task to supervise. Corwin's pine coffin was being loaded into the back of one of Philip's supply carts, the same cart that George himself had used to take Philip's belongings away. Philip's voice was eerily calm. He told the mortars that George Corwin's corpse would be returned to them when the English family's valuables were returned to him. Then he led his men away, carrying his dead hostage behind him. There was a bit of a debate about where to store the sheriff. He'd been cruel in life and stank in death, and Philip wanted him nowhere near his warehouses or his home. Eventually, they settled for a ship anchored just outside of Salem Harbor. The first mate had taken a new position but hadn't yet been replaced, so they stored Corwin's corpse in his cabin. Philip had always loved the sea, so he volunteered to stand guard over the body himself. Corwin, after all, was his cross to bear, his revenge to collect. As he spent day and night with Corwin's corpse, he got used to the smell. But the dreams were torturous. The first night he dreamt he was struggling to keep his head above water on a stormy sea. High above him, hundreds of hangman's nooses hung from the clouds, turning every now and then, as if invisible corpses still hung from their loops. Choppy water shook Philip awake. A nor'easter had swept over the bay and into Salem Harbor. He told himself that that was the cause of the dream and went back to sleep. But the following night, he dreamt again that he was drowning. Only Mary hung from one of the nooses above him. He reached for her, but she was kicking and coughing, eyes pleading. When he slipped beneath the waves, she fell with him, sinking down through the water, just out of reach. When he woke, Philip felt eyes on him. He looked towards the pine box, but the lid was secured. The door to the cabin was locked. He was alone. The dreams continued, night after night. Only in the later ones, Mary wasn't always alone. Sometimes she was with a hurricane of the accused, their bodies swinging above him, only to drop into the sea and appear in the clouds again. One night, Philip became conscious that he was dreaming, and he willed himself to drown, desperately trying to wake up. His eyes shot open and he sat up straight, struggling for breath. But he must have still been dreaming because George Corwin was there, in the corner, crouched on top of his coffin. He looked like some strange gargoyle, staring blankly at Philip. This couldn't be real, he told himself. He would not fall prey to the hysteria that had taken his wife. He would not let Corwin win. But this continued, night after night. Philip's sleep was fitful, and the sheriff's appearance became more and more ghoulish each time. Most nights, Philip simply looked right past him. He would not be cowed by the memory of a murderer. But when it didn't stop, Philip forced himself to lock eyes with the fiend. The sheriff's skin sparked and snapped like an open flame. His eyes were two glittering coals, and his teeth... His teeth were blinding white, the sharp edges coated in crimson blood, Philip and the demonic figure stared at each other for what felt like an eternity. Philip didn't eat. He didn't sleep. He just stared until morning. The next night, a living Corwin, Elizabeth, arrived at the docks. She told Philip she'd searched the entire city for George's body. Every building, every warehouse, But she never thought of a floating tomb. She held out a half-open bag. Inside, silver, gold, and jewels glittered in the moonlight. The English family heirlooms. Philip held Elizabeth's gaze for a long time, trying to discern her expression. But there was no remorse. Exhaustion, yes, and fear. But she would not apologize. Philip didn't understand how she could sleep at night. He asked her if she and her family would ever truly make amends, if they were capable of guilt. He expected outrage, but instead, her voice went quiet, smaller than a child's. She told him she didn't want to see George looming over her bed anymore. It needed to end. Court records confirm that Philip and Mary English had demanded that George Corwin return their property, including livestock, household goods, and valuables. But the circumstances surrounding Corwin's funeral are a bit more hazy. In one version of the story, the Corwin family had George Corwin's body buried in the basement of their house for several years, and then moved to a proper cemetery. He wasn't buried in the cemetery at first, because they feared his victims and their loved ones would desecrate his grave. In another version of the story, Philip English stopped George Corwin's funeral and held Corwin's body for ransom. Coming up, the George Corwin house's newest inhabitant comes face to face with a family secret and a family shame. Now back to the story. After the trials, the citizens of Salem tried to pretend life was back to normal One side felt that the town's coven of witches had been destroyed, while the other doubted that there had been witches in the first place. Try as they might, Salem Village couldn't forget their infamous witch trials, and the past still lingered inside of one particular basement. Thomas was not allowed to say the word witch or speak of the sheriffs, let alone be one. He was not allowed to mention his great-uncle, and he was not, under any circumstances, allowed to enter the basement. Every time Thomas attempted to ask why, he was met with the stern stares of his parents. He mustn't be so cross, his mother said. He mustn't be so rude, his father said, when he was home. It was a very well-managed loop, Thomas realized, but he resolved to escape it. His first opportunity for answers appeared when he began attending school. His two best friends, Zachariah and Ephraim, were wonderfully informative. They told him the witches were all dead people buried around in Salem, and Thomas's great-uncle was the reason these witches were buried. But Thomas still didn't understand what was in the basement. Zachariah suggested it was a witch. Ephraim said that was silly, and insisted it must be a hole to hell itself. They argued for several days, Thomas began to regret telling them about it. Still, the idea haunted him. He tried to open the door to the basement many times, only to be pulled away by this servant or that. His father had even picked him up once, telling him there was nothing down there. At least, not for the living. After some time of trying, Thomas began to have nightmares. Often, he was swallowed by a dark hole beneath their house, grabbed by unseen arms. When he told his mother about the dreams, she went quiet. Then, after a moment, she sighed and agreed to explain. But she made him promise that he would not speak a word of what she was about to say, not to his father, the servants, his friends, no one. Thomas promised, but crossed his fingers behind his back. He wouldn't be a very good friend if he didn't tell Zachariah and Ephraim, especially after they had given him such good theories. In hushed tones, she told him that their family had always stood by their Uncle George and Great Uncle Jonathan. When things seemed dire or dark, they upheld the sheriff and judge's righteousness, even when Salem began to turn against them. George's death had been a surprise to the family. They had a choice to make. They could risk Mr. English desecrating the body, potentially trapping George's soul for all of eternity, or they could come up with their own solution. So, they buried George's body in the basement. It was supposed to be moved to its correct resting place when Philip English finally perished. But the family's enemies didn't cease their hostilities for many decades. So George's body was still waiting below, 80 years later. Thomas's eyes went wide. His mouth opened in an oh, but no noise came out. He leaped off the floor and hugged his mother. Thomas's mother held him away from her and looked him in the eye. She was suffering from nightmares too, she said. She often saw Uncle George waiting for her at the end of the bed. It had been that way for her whole life. Is this what Thomas was seeing too? Thomas didn't know what to say. He hadn't seen Uncle George. Would he now? He thought maybe his mother had lost her mind. Uncle George was dead. But he wasn't going to tell her that. Instead, he nodded nervously that, yes, he'd seen him, and hugged her tight. Zachariah and Ephraim listened to the story the next day with a mix of shock and wonder. They told him he needed to visit the basement and get a look at the body. It would be a great comfort to his mother, they suggested. Zachariah promised that Thomas would be safe. He and Ephraim could act as lookouts. All Thomas had to do was sneak into the basement and get a good look. Then he could run back up and reassure his mother that George was dead and tell them how the body looked because that was only fair. Thomas wanted to say no, but he didn't know how. Ephraim and Zachariah were smiling so big that their faces looked like they might crack in half. He had to do this for them. If he didn't, they might find a new best friend. The school bell rang, and the boys headed inside for their lessons. But Thomas couldn't pay attention. The hours passed slowly, as he worried over what might be down in the basement. He'd never seen a corpse before and he wasn't sure he wanted to see one now. By the time school was over, Thomas's hand was shaking softly against his desk. That afternoon, Zachariah and Ephraim walked to the house with glee, while Thomas trailed behind them. Once they approached, Zachariah and Ephraim ran through the front door and swept Thomas's mother up into a conversation, just as planned, and Thomas watched them for a moment. When Zachariah nodded his head, Thomas knew it was time for him to go. On shaking legs, he walked towards the basement door. He placed his hand on the knob, looking left and right for some roving servant or parent, but no one came to stop him this time. He took a deep breath and opened the door. The basement was damp, with tiny drops of water on the walls. There was almost no light as Thomas went down the steps but a long, thin window let the sun in just enough to keep him from falling down. In the corner of the floor was a large, rectangular box. He'd expected he'd need to dig, and then he could have lied that there was no opportunity to explore further, but the box just sat there, waiting, challenging him. Thomas wasn't sure he could lie to his friends, not when the coffin was sitting right in front of him. He'd tiptoed to it, wanting desperately to get the whole thing over with. He tried to pull up the lid, but it was nailed shut. Some of the boards had greened with fresh mold. A handful of insects climbed across the side, but the lingering smell was the worst part of all, wafting up from the wet wood. It was stronger than any dead animal he'd found on his way to school. It made his chest hurt and his eyes water. He felt like he was going to be sick. Thomas tried to go toward the stairs to tell his friends that he'd seen the coffin. But something grabbed him from behind. Fingers wrapped around Thomas's neck and lifted him up into the air. Thomas kicked and swung and tried to hit whatever was holding him up. But the force was unaffected. It dragged his body across the room towards the basement wall and slammed him against the stones. He cried out, but his yelp was stifled as the unseen hands squeezed his throat tighter. He couldn't speak, but tears still fell. His mother had been right. He shouldn't have gone into the basement. He'd probably made his uncle even more restless. Suddenly, long, translucent arms materialized in front of him. He could see the tendons in them straining as the grip got tighter around his throat. Thomas pulled vainly against the attack. Tears and snot slid down his face. Slowly, his uncle's face started to come into view. He had a thin smile and glittering dark eyes, like the devil. For the first time in his very short life, Thomas had to contemplate the idea that he might die. The spirit of George asked Thomas what he was doing here. He laughed a little as he realized he needed to give Thomas air so he could speak. He still held Thomas by the scruff of his shirt, his legs dangling uselessly off the ground. Thomas stammered that he just wanted to help his mother. George laughed again, sizing him up. He asked Thomas how he was planning to make him leave his mother alone. Thomas's voice was nearly inaudible, as he said he wasn't sure how but he tried to make George feel guilty, shouting as best he could that he didn't understand why George would do that to his family. George looked puzzled. Then he placed Thomas on the floor gently and told him to go upstairs. Thomas didn't have to be told twice. He took the steps two at a time and shut the door behind him. His mother and friends looked at him quizzically as he entered the kitchen. He told his mother he wasn't feeling well. She sent Zachariah and Ephraim home and put him to bed early, feeding him soup and warm milk before kissing him goodnight. But Thomas stayed up late, wondering if George was still scaring his mother. When he could worry no longer, he closed his eyes. He wasn't sure when he woke. It was still dark, and he could only hear one lone horse and cart on the street below. He squinted in the dark trying to figure out what had roused him. Slowly, a form took shape, familiar and horrible all at once. His Uncle George was watching him from the end of his bed. Visitors to the basement of the George Corwin house report strange feelings of weight and depression in the lowest level of the home. Several people have claimed to be choked by an unseen force, which becomes more disturbing when you consider George Corwin's nickname, The Strangler. The residence at 148 Washington Street didn't stay in the Corwin family for very long. The land was acquired by a merchant sailor named Joshua Ward in 1784, who then built one of Salem's first brick houses on the stone foundation of George Corwin's home. The three-floor, federal-style mansion is now listed in the National Register of Historic Places and has been transformed into a boutique hotel. Salem has decided to lean into its history instead of hiding it. The police cars have town logos with pointed hats on them, and the local high school's mascot is a witch. The year-long shared nightmare has now turned the town into a spooky Halloween getaway. But the remnants of the witch killer's legacy still appear in the George Corwin house's corridors and walls. Though the house on top has changed, you can still see a piece of the 17th century structure peeking out from underneath. One part of George Corwin's history in the building is still preserved. It's the basement. Thanks again for tuning in to Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. And don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legends series, available only on Spotify. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, Sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Richey, with writing assistance by Alex Garland. I'm Greg Polson. Don't forget to check out Our Love Story, the newest Spotify original from ParCast. Every Tuesday, discover the many pathways to love as told by the actual couples who found them. Listen to Our Love Story free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.